Hello everyone, welcome to Ideas and Insights. I am Badri Nathrao, your host for this program. Let me begin by posing some personal questions. Is your life somewhat messy now, conflict-ridden? Or do you feel overwhelmed by work, frazzled by family obligations, problems at home, or with friends? Do you get this sense that you've lost control over your life? Have you ever felt that nothing is worth doing? That you cannot trust anyone? That life is mean and people are egoistic? Do you stay awake at night wondering whether life is worth living? If you are lucky enough to be free from these challenges, maybe you are a victim of information and opportunity overloads. Thus, though your life is good, competing goals pull you in different directions. You're at a loss to decide what matters and what you want out of life. If any of these issues torment you, you're not alone. This predicament is what we call the human condition. We all go through these agonies during different phases of our lives and to varying degrees. We experience a numbing sense of void, interminable anxiety, and an unavailing sense of despondency. What makes this anguish and sense of hopelessness particularly acute is that we all have only one life that is unidirectional, finite, and non-renewable. Besides, some mistakes we make are non-biodegradable. Compounding these complications, life forces us to make choices in circumstances not of our choosing. These crippling limitations of life, coupled with myriad options that have come in the wake of new technologies, leave us befuddled. In one form or the other, this perplexity has assailed humankind in every era. Therefore, the enduring question of our epoch is figuring out what we want out of life. A new book, What Do You Want Out of Life? A Philosophical Guide to Figuring Out What Matters by Professor Valerie Tiberius offers crisp and creative insights for addressing this age-old dilemma. An eminent philosopher, Professor Tiberius, is the Paul W. Frenzel Chair of Liberal Arts and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Minnesota. A widely published author, she has spent decades pondering over the seemingly intractable problem of coming to grips with her choices, goals, and values in the face of continual change. Her book, What Do You Want Out of Life?, published by Princeton University Press this year, provides a bracing account of how we can lead a life of fulfillment by deftly managing conflicts arising from incompatible goals and values. Professor Tiberius posits that our happiness rests on our ability to achieve things we care about. 
This task is conditioned by the goals and values we pursue. Contradictory goals and values create conflicts that unsettle our minds and make us uncertain about what we want. Mired in endless conflicts, we lose sight of our priorities. After delineating the contours of this malaise, Professor Tiberius offers five concrete strategies for learning about our goals and values. They include introspection, the lab rat strategy that involves studying yourself from the outside, guided reflection, learning from others, and exploration. A singular distinction of what do you want out of life is that it offers eminently practical solutions to our everyday problems. Its author, Professor Tiberius, notes that zeroing in on goals and values that suit us best does not happen overnight. To deal with the conflicts arising from divergent goals, she outlines practical responses such as prioritizing and adjusting means to ends, giving up one of the conflicting goals, and reinterpreting our goals. Besides these easy-to-use prescriptions, Professor Tiberius also offers sage advice on how to deal with hostility when our goals and values are at odds with social norms. She advocates making peace with what we cannot change or consider embracing radical changes in our attitudes toward an uncooperative world. Philosophically rigorous, yet accessible, what do you want out of life is an illuminating roadmap for obviating needless conflicts and anchoring ourselves in values and goals that enable us to realize our human potential. This book is remarkable because unlike run-of-the-mill self-help books, it does not deliver homilies. Professor Tiberius refuses to prescribe values because she recognizes the mind-boggling diversity of strengths and interests among people. Instead, she avers that the best values for us are the ones that suit who we are and that we can actually realize in our lives. Though Professor Tiberius casts the responsibility on individuals to decipher their goals and values, she also accentuates the social dimension of our lives. Thus, acknowledging our need for affiliation and social recognition, she avers that other people are indispensable for learning about ourselves and sustaining our sense that our actions make a difference. To find our best values, Professor Tiberius says, we should recognize all the ways in which our values connect to each other. What do you want in life is a penetrating work of scholarship predicated on the existentialist philosophy. Existentialists maintain that there is value in the world because there are people who value things and we need to figure out what to value and how. Going beyond this radical choice framework, Professor Tiberius argues 
that our choices about people are made in the context of our goal-seeking psychology and our highly socially interdependent human nature. We have some choice in how we understand, prioritize, and pursue goals. This ability provides the impetus for making better choices and leading fulfilling lives. Dr. Tiberius joins me now to discuss these ideas. Welcome to Ideas and Insights, Professor Tiberius. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And thank you for that absolutely wonderful overview. I, I wish you had written the introduction to my book. <laughs> thank you so much. Now, let me begin by asking you a question about the main theme of your book. Your book is about finding out what matters in life. Now, there are several self-help books that address this question. How is your book different from the ones in the self-help genre, and why did you write this book? That's something I, I've thought a lot about. And uh -huh. when I wrote the book, I, I actually say at some point, you probably remember that it's not a self-help book. Correct, uh, you do. And, and I was thinking when I said that it isn't a self-help book, that my experience with self-help books is that they have pretty simplistic strategies that are intended to work for everybody so they, I think they kind of collapse the differences between people to a certain degree. Um, I've I've benefited a lot from self-help books, so I don't want to put them down or denigrate them in any way. Um, but what I was trying to do in my book is to offer um, something for people who are bothered by these kind of deeply reflective questions about what matters and how do I know that this is what matters and what do I do when the things that matter to me are conflicting with each other? Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we have questions like that, that um, a sort of one size fits all technique doesn't really serve the purpose. Mm -hmm. Now, your book, you say, concerns itself with the question of living well However, in the preface, you acknowledge that a number of people, about 50% of the world's population, cannot live well because of external factors. Could be poverty, hunger, unemployment, labor issues, and so on and so forth. And you clearly state that your focus is not on those external factors because they lie beyond your area of expertise, which is as it should be. Are we to assume, therefore, that this philosophical inquiry that you have uh, exposed your readers to is predominantly for people belonging to the middle and upper classes? Or does it apply to everyone who reads the book? Yeah, that's certainly a fair question. So let me say first that it is true that solving those kinds of problems that stem from gross injustices, mm -hmm. um, global injustice, 
that's beyond my expertise. I don't think it actually requires a lot of expertise to know what's missing from the lives of people who don't have the luxury to be reflective about what they value. I think, you know, there's a significant number of people, I don't know whether it's 50% of the world's population, as you said, but it's some percentage of the world's population that isn't small, um, who lack clean drinking water, sanitation, proper sanitation, basic medical care, their lives would be better if they had those things. And I think as a matter of justice, the rest of the world, the the rich in the, in the world um, ought to do a better job of providing those things. And we don't, and that's a political uh, and moral failure. Um, I don't know how to fix that. That's the part that's certainly beyond my my expertise. Um, but I also so so that's that's part of your question. I I guess I don't think I I'd be interested. I'd like to know what other people think about this question too. But I don't think that the strategies I offer and the problems that I talk about are only for the upper middle class, um, and they're certainly not only for academics. Um, it strikes me if you think about, you know, a lot of people um, may have heard about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, sure. where at the, you know, you have ba your basic needs at the bottom, and at the top is some is self actualization or self realization. You can't start to think about what matters most in life if your basic needs are not met. But pretty quickly, even if your basic needs are your basic needs are met, but you don't have a lot of um, disposable income for luxuries and fancy vacations or or um, education, uh, you still confront conflicts. Um, you know, people who uh, are not in positions of privilege still have work-life balance issues. Um, and so, so I think one of the things I think, one of the ideas that I think is most important from the book is this idea that our values can be reinterpreted and that what it means to succeed in terms of your work or your family life or your friendships or your um, spiritual life, we can change how we interpret success in our values. And I think that's something that any anybody who's not you know, struggling just to get by and to feed their children. Um, I think anyone who's doing okay uh, can can benefit from those ideas and and may have those kinds of reflective questions about what matters more and how does it matter. Your book is primarily an exploration of two questions, and we shall take them one by one. You begin by stating that in order to lead a fulfilling life, we must be mindful of our goals and values and the conflicts between them. So let's begin by talking about your views on goals and values, and also what you mean by conflicts uh, between goals and values. Can you tell us about that, please? So uh, this is this is one of those places where philosophers like to have 
technical terms that we try to define very precisely. So what uh, what I mean by a goal is just anything you want. Um, mm-hmm. It's a it's the broadest category. So you know your goal could be dinner or um, taking a shower or graduating from college or getting a promotion. Goals are huge. I values, what I mean by a value is a very special type of goal mm-hmm. that engages us not just in terms of our desires, but also in terms of our emotional dispositions and in terms of our judgments about, you know, what we should make plans for in our life. Um, values also tend to be more important. So, mm-hmm. You know, I want to take a shower after I exercise, maybe. Uh, but do I value taking a shower? Not, not, not really. If if it doesn't happen, I'll be fine. I'll be a little dirty, but it's not a big deal. Um, but with values, I value, you know, my health and my my family, my marriage. Um, those are things that, when they're threatened, it does. It is really important to me, and it affects my life in a in a pretty profound way. So that's the difference between goals are just basically anything you want. Values are special goals, and um, values also have mm-hmm. a kind of structure to them. Well, the whole package of all your values and goals. Some things are higher up in the hierarchy they're more important to you and some things are you know not very important at all some of the goals that we have are just instrumental to other values um so for instance my uh you know my goal is to have dinner tonight i'd like to eat something well that's i don't want that for its own sake really i want it to for my health or to mm-hmm. to um, have a full stomach or to have the energy to do other things. Um, so goals and values are arranged in these sort of mm-hmm. systems. And in those systems, you can have conflicts. Um, I think the most common con- conflict that probably everyone's familiar with is the work-life balance conflict. So many of us care about our work to some degree, or we at least uh, it's important to us. Um, but we also care about other things like family and um, hobbies, maybe, or athletic pursuits that we do. And the more you work, the less time you have for those other things. The more time you spend with your kids, the less time you have for work. So that's the sort of conflict that's um, very common. But there are lots of other kinds of conflicts in that big system of goals and values that can create frustration. The second question that you explore in your book, Professor Tiberius, is what you call the uh, relationship between goals and values. And you say that if we can improve our understanding of these concepts and if we can manage them well, we can reduce conflict. And you've just now spoken about uh, different types of conflicts. Now. Some might say that conflicts are endemic to life, that conflicts are a fact of life. So this is something that we must learn to manage. And there will never be a time when we will be completely free from conflicts. It's just uh, a fact of life. So why are we spending so much energy 
on something that we cannot help. What would you say to them? Yeah, good, good point. I mean, not only are conflicts inevitable, they also can be beneficial. So mm-hmm. sometimes you you have a conflict and it forces you to make a plan, make a choice, to clarify something, um, to, to it, it helps you learn something about yourself. So um, I, the kinds of conflicts that I think we need to, you know, to, to manage and do something about are these are serious, persistent conflicts between important values. Um, and it's not that, so the goal isn't necessarily to eliminate the conflict completely. We might always have to live with some conflict, but uh the goal would be to have some way of managing the conflict so that you can still be relatively successful in terms of both of those values that are, you know, at odds with each other to a certain extent. Like if you take the work-life balance example again, you know, that's a case where the conflict is mostly due to, in, in the simplest way of putting it, mostly due to limited time. You just don't have enough time to do everything you could possibly do in your job and everything you could possibly do in all your other pursuits, your life, right? Um, So that's never going to be eliminated. You are always going to have limited time. Um, We we only get one life (laughs) and, uh, and time is a limited resource. But you can manage the conflict so that you're not always feeling like you're failing at both work and life. That's that would be the thought. So if is it fair to say that you're primarily concerned with chronic, toxic, long-term conflicts that have the effect of eclipsing one's human potential and capabilities? Yeah, that that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. And you know, I would just add conflicts that result in your feeling like a failure. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to strategies for identifying our goals and values. You assign a lot of importance to this task and you think that we all should pay attention to how we identify our goals and our values. And this is the very first step in living meaningfully. And you have outlined five major strategies. Could you please tell us more about these strategies and why you think they're important? So the first one is introspection, which is just sitting there asking yourself, what do I value? Um, That I think is a natural place that any kind of reflective person, we just naturally start there. It, I think it's a pretty limited strategy because mm-hmm. um, there's a, a good bit of evidence from research and psychology that we're not, we're not all that good at introspecting our deepest uh, needs and desires and feelings. So introspection has its place, but I think it needs to be supplemented by some other strategies. So the next strategy I talk about is I call the lab rat strategy, which is 
looking at yourself as if you were a scientist um, trying to figure out like, well, who is this person? Uh, what are they, what are they interested in? What mm -hmm. do they care about? Um, the lab rat strategy actually has two sides to it. You can look at yourself as a human being and learn something about what human nature is like and what human beings tend to care about and what tends to make us flourish. Um, and you can also look at yourself as if you're, you know, another person as the individual that you are, what makes you different from other people. Um, guided reflection is a strategy that, uh, that's the, the third strategy. Guided reflection is one that, um, again, this actually does come from self-help programs where, mm -hmm. uh, psychologists like clinical psychologists and and personal coaches have these techniques you can use to um set yourself a task uh something to imagine um so that you articulate goals in a way that gets at some of your um unconscious, non-linguistic, uh, that, that aspect of your psychology. Uh, so you can, there are various exercises like this that you can um, find on the, on the great internet and, and, and in coaching or in therapy uh, where people will have you, uh, you know, do something where you relax and you try to imagine you know, just imagine your ideal future or imagine your ideal job where you're the, you're not really introspecting, like, what is it that I want? But instead, you're trying to let your your subconscious ima imagination kind of bubble up. Um, it's one. It's another way of getting around the limitations of introspection. So the fourth strategy is learning from others, which is kind of a complement to the lab rat strategy. I mean, if we can, if we can learn something by looking at ourselves as if, you know, I can look at myself as if I were a friend. Uh, well, you can actually ask your friends what they notice about you and what, um, what they, what they see about the kinds of things that um, are most compelling to you or most interesting to you. Um, just, you know, sometimes friends are not very accurate or sensitive, so, but if you're lucky enough to have friends or family members who, you know, are pretty, um, pretty perceptive mm -hmm. and like sensitive enough to talk to you about it without making you cry or feel terrible, <laughs> uh, that, that can be a really a helpful strategy. And then the last strategy is exploration. So, there might be things you love that just aren't on your radar because you haven't been exposed to them. And so having a bit of a spirit of getting out there and trying new things is um, a good way to find the values that, that are best for you because they might not have been the values that you, that you grew up with. While talking about goals and values, you make a very interesting observation. You say we must not only be able to identify our values, but also be able to know how to assess them and what value to attach to them. What does that mean? 
Yeah. So this is a point that I, that's really important to me that like, if you ask people what they value, mm -hmm. people say the same things. So, you know, they've, they've done research on this where they, uh, they do value surveys and they ask people what their values are. By and large, people say security, health, family, career, Many people, for many people, um, church or some kind of spiritual community right. um, is is in there. Um, but we don't all pursue those values in the same way. And what family means to one person is very different from what family means to another person. Mm -hmm. So those most at those sort of highest level in the system, they're at the top. These very abstract values, they require some interpretation for us to be able to act on them and to have a sense of, well, what does it actually mean? If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna look at my life and say, how's my life going? Well, I'm doing pretty well on my career and I'm doing pretty well on this. What does that mean? Doing well, what is doing well? Is it like is it getting paid a lot? Is it being respected by my coworkers? Is it making a difference? What's doing well in terms of your friendships? Is it never having a fight with them? Is it having lots of friends or having a few deep friends, deep, deep connections? Um, so I think that there are different ways of valuing these big core values that are at the top. And there's not one recipe that suits every person. Um, people will just differ. And that's something that we have to figure out for ourselves. Now, the five strategies that you've outlined for identifying goals and values are appropriate and useful. However, isn't it true that there are a lot of people who lack the time the training, the temperament, and the tenacity to pursue these strategies, one or all of them, particularly given the levels of insecurity that people are confronted with these days and the fact that virtually all of us are uh, victims of chronological poverty. The question then is, uh, how feasible is it to expect people to take to these strategies? Do you have any thoughts on that? You have to tell me what chronological poverty is. Well, is not having time. Not having <laughs> that time. Simple, that? I, lo I love that. I love that label. That's good. Can I borrow that? <laughs> sure you may. Um, so, good point. I, I think... So for one thing, you know, who are the people who are going to read the book? They're people who have an, already have an interest in doing this kind of reflection, doing this kind of work. Um, so, you know, it might be that the real audience for the book is people who are troubled by this question of what do I want out of life and what matters and how do I figure that out? And those are people who will make time for these strategies, I think. I, I guess I also think that some of these strategies don't take very long. Mm -hmm. And um, things like in the 
lab rat strategy, and one of the things I talk about is paying attention to your emotions. So that doesn't take any more time than than living living your life. It's just a matter of observing things and noting them. So when you you do something and you find yourself unexpectedly completely stressed out by it and and crying sometimes people react to mm -hmm. an experience like that with saying like oh i'm stressed next time i need you know i need i need to get more sleep or i got to i got to not be stressed it could be that something that causes you a tremendous amount of anguish and stress is not a great thing for you to do. Um, so I think sometimes our emotions are trying to tell us something and all we have to do is sort of decide to listen to them, which doesn't take a lot of time. Might be easier to see that with, might be um, a clearer case to think about, about the positive emotions. So like you might find yourself doing something where you just, you get into the state of like, say maybe you play a new game or you do a new sport with a friend or you, mm -hmm. um, or you meet a new person and have coffee with them or something. And you find yourself in this state of flow where, you know, you're talking and you lose track of time and you just so enjoying it. That experience of flow is something that if you can notice it and say, that's information from my emotions that this was a good connection I had with this person or that this was an activity I might love to do more of. I think that kind of strategy doesn't doesn't take a whole lot of time. I think people do have time for that. All right. I had in mind people who uh, lack the cultural capital to even access what you're saying, but we will have to move on. Uh, you refrain from prescribing a set of values in your book because you recognize that people come with uh, different strengths, they have different thresholds, and they are endowed with different constitutional proclivities. And so you say that we must embrace the values that suit us and the ones that we can fulfill in our lives which is fine, but then isn't it also true that if we set the bar low, that we might be denying ourselves the opportunity to excel? More importantly, as goal-seeking creatures, we are set up to push the limits and broaden the horizons. And if we define our values suboptimally, are we, albeit unwittingly, trying to diminish our human potential? What do you have to think, say about this? Right, so good. Um, so <laughs> when, when I say I don't want to prescribe values to people, uh -huh. I'm, I am philosophically deeply committed to recognizing that there are not objective values out there that impose themselves on people. That said, we're human beings and we have a ton in common with 
-hmm. almost all of us share some basic, very abstract values, just in virtue of our being, as you, as you noted, goal-seeking creatures. And one of those things that we share is an interest in novelty and exploration. Goal-seeking creatures have to get out there and do things. Um, it's a kind of, to, to, to be any kind of goal-seeking creature, you have to achieve some kind of balance of exploration and safety. Um, if you, if you just sit all the time in your, in your house or your cave or your nest, um, you'll never achieve anything. But if you're always pushing, 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 pushing and, and reaching for the next thing, you expose yourself to too much danger. So any goal-seeking creature has these two tendencies. And I think for most people, the vast, vast majority of people, um, to set your goals too low is going to frustrate that part of your human nature. Uh, so you'll, you actually, you will end up being frustrated, mm -hmm. um, despite yourself. Uh, you think you're making your life easier by limiting your goals and lowering the bar. But in fact, there is just, as you're saying, a part of your human potential that's going to be unfulfilled. Um, and that's why I think lowering our goals, lowering our standards, isn't actually a good strategy. Although I, I, I take your point that it, you know, People often ask me that question, like if what we want is value fulfillment, why don't we just pick values that are super easy to fulfill and then we'll all be happy? I don't think it works that way because of what we have just in virtue of our nature. While you refrain from prescribing values, Professor Tiberius, you also say that in defining values, we must acknowledge people around us because they sustain our sense that we are making a difference. Affiliation with them is important uh, for our sense of uh, self. We become fully human in and through a dialogic process and so on. So are you obliquely hinting that our definition of values should not be too individualistic. Instead, that it should be anchored in the public good. Would you agree with this? Not so almost. Uh, so just, just as with the human need for novelty and exploration, I think we have a very deep human need for affiliation, for mm -hmm. relationship with other creatures, especially other human beings. Um, now, that means that for most of us, the values that we have are going to be values that we pursue with other people, where the standards that we have for success invoke other people, um, where other people are uh, involved in creating the notions of success that we that we have. Um, I just want to I just want to be clear that the reason I still 
am committed to saying that I'm not imposing values on people mm-hmm. is that I'm, I, it's, I think it's, I'm open to the thought, in fact, I think it's probably the truth that there are people who don't need much affiliation. There aren't that many people like that, but there are some people who um, do perfectly fine on their own. Um, There are people who don't really care about their communities. And I, you know, I, I'm, it's a little bit sad from my perspective, but those people can be very difficult for the rest of us to live with, but I'm not here to say that they must have those values, the ones I have. Instead, what I'm saying is, look, you know, most of us are profoundly social creatures. And that means that the values that are going to work out best for us are ones that are, Mm -hmm. that do acknowledge the way in which we're related to each other. So, um, yeah, I think, I know that's a kind of a tricky middle point, but that's, that's the that's the thought. I'm not sure I answered your whole question. Did I get the there was a second part to it? Well, what I was trying to get at was that are you suggesting that uh, while there are some like monks for instance and nuns who retire literally from society and there are some who have a solipsistic world view where they believe that the self alone is true and all else is false, uh, barring these people, the vast majority of us are eminently social as a species. And so we owe a debt of gratitude to those around us. They give us a sense of who we are and they are critical in our flourishing. And so the way we define values cannot be divorced from the larger good of the communities in which we live. That was my question. I like, yeah, that was very well put. I am saying that. (laughs) Indeed, very good. Yeah, okay. I I mean, you know, to just to elaborate a little bit on that, I think we certainly don't all have the same idea about what the good of the community means and what it means to say that some, you know, that we're being, that we're expressing gratitude to the people around us or that we're paying, that we're respecting the fact that we're members of a community. Those values, there's a tremendous diversity about what exactly that comes down to. But I think just what you said, most of us who aren't hermits or solipsists or narcissists or psychopaths, uh, most of us are, are, we're sort of stuck with that sociality. Well, as for people uh, whose value systems we do not approve of, you advocate humility. And I thought that was an interesting insight. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. So... I advocate humility, particularly in the context of friendship, where um, I'm sure most people have had relationships with other people, maybe friends or family members, (laughs) siblings, where they do things and you think, 
So I'm not thinking of people who are doing things that are grossly immoral, like not people who are out there on a rampage or robbing banks or something, but people who do things where you think, why do they do that? Why why do rock climbing when you could fall and kill yourself or, or, you know, whatever it is, why put so much energy in such a silly pursuit? But that's the place where I think humility is important because I think it's really, we do have a great tendency to think that however it is for us is the way it is for other people, egocentric bias. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to think, well, I don't like that thing. I don't like rock climbing. I don't like um, tap dancing or whatever it is. Um, But another person, given what their, all of their tendencies are like, they might get a tremendous amount of joy or flow or, or whatever out of that, um, out of that pursuit. And, it's easy for us to to dismiss other people's goals or the way that they interpret the values in their lives because they're different from ours. Um, but I think if what they're doing isn't immoral, if it's not hurting anybody, I think it is important to have some humility about that because I, I think we just it's hard for us to know what it's really like to be another person. Let us now turn to the conflicts that come in the wake of divergent goals and values. You outline five concrete strategies for dealing with such conflicts. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, so the first is kind of the easiest, prioritize and adjust means to ends. So let's go back to the work-life balance example one thing that I think is important is that prioritization doesn't and isn't, it's not a one and done thing. You okay. don't hit 30, get your, your first, um, you, your, you know, let's say you, you get, you turn 30 years old and you get a job that you're really excited about and you prioritize that over everything else. And you say, all right, career has priority. <laughs> um, I, I think rather what happens is you prioritize your career for a while because you have to in order to make a name for yourself or learn some skills or just to to get the job a job that's satisfying to you. And then something happens. Maybe you get married, maybe you have children, um, maybe your parents need you as they're aging, and then you have to shift your priorities. So that prioritization is, you know, one strategy for managing conflicts. Um, the second strategy is giving something up. Uh, you know, if you're, if you, if there's a conflict between A and B, well, you could just give one of those things up. I actually don't think. I think that is a strategy that works for little goals, but doesn't typically work for those big, important values. And that's, it's because of what we talked about earlier, because of our, these, these um, tendencies we have as part of our human nature, you can't just give up caring about your family. That's, that's not a way forward. Um, And most of us can't give up our work life either, and, and wouldn't want to. But there might be cases where you've 
had the goal of doing something for many years because you maybe you learned from your parents that it's it would be great if you could uh learn a musical instrument or learn a second language and you know the whole time it's like beating your head against the wall you hate it you hate practicing <laughs> that might be something where you just think you know what need that anymore. Um, so there are cases where I think giving something up is the right way to go. Um, the third strategy is the one I think is the most important, which is the strategy of reinterpretation, where the idea is that um, you, you, you can identify these kind of big values like work or family, um, health, but you don't really know exactly what it means to succeed and how you think about success can change. And it in particular can change over time. So what friendship means to you in your, when you're in college might be very different than what friendship means to you when you're in your fifties, as I am. Um, in your 20s, you're kind of testing things out, looking for new relationships. You might have lots of friends and success in terms of friendship might have a lot to do with who's fun to hang out with and who's a good connection and who connects you to other people. Then by the time you're in your 50s, friendship has a lot more to do with people you feel comfortable with, having a few very close friends who you can turn to when things bad things happen, which they do. So um, reinterpretation is something it, I think the most useful strategy, and it's one that that you kind of keep using over time as life throws you uh, different curveballs. I the fourth strategy. So the last two strategies are not so much strategies as other things. <laughs> Um, right. I have a question about that. And uh, I must tell you that we are coming close to the end of the interview. So the um, I have two questions and we have to be, uh, uh, you know, quick. Now, with respect to conflict management in an uncooperative world, you have two prescriptions. You say, accept the situation as it is or embrace radical change, bring about a radical change. However, both prescriptions are at the individual level. You either passively accept the situation and move on, or you change your consciousness. I was intrigued by the fact that you did not think that collective action could be a useful strategy. Can you briefly tell us about that, please? Oh, I absolutely think that collective action it's the only strategy for that kind of for, for political change. I totally agree with you about that. And I, that to me, I think of that as coming up at the end of the book when I talk about moral um, moral values and how you can contribute to the world making moral progress. And I completely agree with you that that's not something you do as a as an individual. Yeah. All right, let me go to the last question uh, of this interview, and that has to do with uh, your engagement with existentialism. You accept some of the foundational premises of existentialism, but then you part ways 
and uh, dissociate yourself from the radical choice perspective and you have a different take on this question. Briefly, can you tell us what existentialism is and how your perspective departs from mainstream existentialism? Oh, yeah, that's a brief question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I am sorry, that's, but we okay, are out I'll, of time. I'll do, so I'll do my best. The, the existentialists, uh, I, agreed with, I agree with the existentialists <laughs> that there aren't values out there to be discovered, that they are made by us, constructed or chosen. But the existentialists were very um, allergic to the idea that there is a human nature that constrains those choices. Whereas I think, uh, you know, there are some outliers when it comes to human nature, but I think we do have a nature that makes some choices a lot better for us than other choices. And that's, that's the quickest I can be on that. <laughs> you have done a great job. Thank you so much, Professor Tiberius. Uh, we are grateful to you for taking the time to talk to us. And I thank you for that. And I applaud you for a wonderful book that you've written. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. It's really fun to talk to you. Thanks for inviting me. That's it for this episode of Ideas and Insights. Thanks for joining us today. In the coming weeks, we will discuss afterlives of data, life and death under capitalist surveillance by Professor Mary Ebling, an associate professor of sociology at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Published by the University of California Press this year, Afterlives of Data takes us into the secretive world of data collection and breaches of privacy every time we create a digital footprint. Professor Ebling provides a sensitive ethnographic account of how information about our health and debt becomes biopolitical assets owned by healthcare providers, insurers, commercial data brokers, and platforms. By delving into the oceans of data built from everyday medical and debt traumas, Professor Ebling reveals how data about our lives affect our bodies and our life chances and wholly define us. Critical and disturbing, Afterlives of Data examines how Americans' data about their health and their debt are used in the service of marketing and capitalist surveillance. Watch out for an exciting discussion in the coming weeks. Until then, Stay safe and goodbye.